Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Froth is Nonlinear edition of Slate Money. It's your weekly guide, I hope, to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Kathy O'Neill. I'm in for Felix Salmon this week. On the show, we pick up where we left off last week with the gender gap and a new argument that it might close on its own. Hmm. We'll ponder whether China is the next Japan, whatever that means, and we'll do our best to explain why so many companies are buying back their own shares. With me in New York is Slate's own Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman, and we also have a very special guest to help us through Felix's sad absence, Cardiff Garcia of FT Alphaville. Cardiff, you want to say a couple words about your yourself and your background? Sure. I am the U.S. editor of FT Alphaville, and as funky as that title sounds, I'm really just a blogger. Alphaville is the flagship economics and finance blog of the Financial Times, and we write about all kinds of quirky and nerdy things. So if um, your previous podcasts are any indication, I think I'm going to fit right in. Also, I'd like to add, uh, Cardiff is, is widely renowned as an uh, avid kickboxer. <laughs> that is, is that right? That is I, I do something called Muay Thai, Thai boxing. That's that right. is, yeah. okay, I'm not going to say anything so, to offend you. Yeah. Also, I just want to throw in that FT Alphaville is not behind the um, paywall, and that's nice. That's 
That's right. As well. Yeah, it's um, right. We like that about it. And it's nerdy. So yes. we definitely like that. Okay. Well, so today we're going to start with Jordan. Jordan, you're an expert on the gender gap in pay. Can you, uh, can you start us off? So the Census Bureau came out with its annual report on income and poverty, which also tells us about the gender gap every year. And it reported that uh, women made 78 cents on the dollar compared to men. This is the smallest gap in U.S. history. Um, so we're seeing incremental progress. And oh, the, one of the nice things about that is it actually means that uh, younger women are probably making even more uh, relative to men um, because it's going to be skewed slightly by baby boomers who make who comparatively don't have a larger gap. So before you go on, because I'm a data nerd and I need to know exactly what you mean by any statistic, mm. are these like men who are working versus women who are working? So it ignores yeah. unwork, non-working so people? This is the important thing to know about this. The, this, this is probably one of the most famous and misunderstood statistics in economics. The, you know, 77, 78 cents on dollar, whatnot. Um, when the census produces that figure, they're comparing basically all working men to all working women. Um, it part-time, full-time, young, old, whatever, you know, same different jobs, different levels of education. Um, and so one of the things you always have to remember when, when you hear that figure is that once you start controlling for, or once you start accounting for all the differences between men and women, the kinds of jobs they work in, the kinds of hours they keep, um, the gap shrinks. And you can get it down to, depending on exactly how you do the math, nine cents on the dollar, even five cents on the dollar. Um, but there is always this sort of unexplained, uh, what they refer to as unexplained gap, economists say, which so, is what a lot of us would just call probably discrimination. Right. Well, we'll get to the discrimination in a second. But yeah. let's just go back to the first point you made, which was the skew of the baby boomer. So I think what you're saying, tell me mm -hmm. if I'm right, is if you stratify – so this is an aggregate yeah. number. And it sounds like good news. I'm going to dig down a little bit further because there's also bad news um, at the <laughs> poverty end of this of the spectrum. Yeah. But if we stratify instead by age of the worker, I think what you're saying is the baby boomers have a very large gap and the yep. young people probably have a very small gap. Yeah, that, that's part of it. And, you know, one of the reasons for this is children. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's one, one of the big factors that that that, that kind of stunts women's pay is, is the fact that they do leave the workforce for a time, often leave the workforce after they have children, um, and then have a hard time making back the, those last, those lost years of work, though they kind of, you know, they kind of slide back down the scale, they, they slide back down, essentially. Um, but also just women have been advancing in the workplace over time. And so you know, the millennials are closer to men than the baby boomers at, the, at this age. Um, all this is interesting, because at the same time, Tyler Cowen has come out with a new essay basically arguing that inevitably this gap is going to continue closing. I know, Cart, if you've read a little bit about that, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. I had my own. Um, sure. I'm a little skeptical of the idea that anything's inevitable here. but it's... Uh, I'm certainly skeptical of the idea that it's a sufficient condition, right? But it, it did strike me as plausible that yeah. as more women enter some occupations, um, that some of, especially that residual that we just talked about, is going to shrink a little bit. It's harder to enforce kind of archaic masculine norms uh, and sexism um, if half of your company is women. Yeah. Right? And especially if they start advancing into the C-suites. So, Cardiff, can, you, can yeah. you, like, dig down? Can you explain what the Tyler Cohen study is? What was he saying? Oh, I mean, he was he was referring to a couple of new books uh, on the topic that he was um, that he was reviewing. And essentially the idea is that there are some occupations where the gender gap is especially bad. Uh, but the problem is that there aren't very many women in those occupations. And so... 
um, his thinking was that it was sort of inevitable that as more and more women, that's sort of the key variable, right, is just how many, how many women are there. It's not about the laws. It's not about, you know, any kind of regulations or, or you know, um, pay incentives or whatever. The key variable is how many women, what percentage of women are in those occupations. As that climbs, he expects uh, the gender gap to, to also shrink. What was interesting I thought about um – you know, Cowan's argument was that he was looking at data that wasn't just about workplaces. It was also about the way women. Basically, he was looking at a book that that, that examined the way women interact in, uh, you know, public meetings, in in boardrooms, in sort of any environment. And the idea was that once they hit that critical mass, like you said, they start participating more and they start kind of demanding fair. Essentially, they start demanding fair treatment. If there are too few women in a you know in the room, they kind of shy off to the side. That okay, was the argument. I'm going to jump in now because I really have a... It was interesting to me how much I disagreed with his yeah. column. <laughs> um, so first of all, I just want to push back at the, at the idea that um, as women come into like a in, an industry, shall we say, um, things get better. It might be true, but I just... I, I think the cause and effect is being confused. I think women shy away from industries where they know they're going to get screwed. And so... I want to go specifically to the study that he referred to in that column. Mm -hmm. Um, Namely, he was talking about when women, um, when people are given perfect information about sharing a pot of money, that women often um, basically want it it to be fair. So if they're given $100 to share, they're more likely to offer $50 to the person that they're sharing with, especially if it's a woman. Um, And they, and the idea of the column was that this is just a travesty that women are just not, they don't know how to take advantage of other people. And that's a bad thing. I think of that as a good thing. That's like, <laughs> so in other words, he, he's sort of, sort of like those, those pathetic beings. And I'm like, well, actually, what is the goal here? What right. is the goal? I think um, you're basically saying in a competitive environment, you should try to screw the other people as much as possible. And women aren't very good at that. And that's such a shame. But the good news from, from his point of view is that women are learning to be more of an asshole. <laughs> I, I I don't think that was his editorial line there. I, I guess uh, I, I took away a somewhat more optimistic message, which was that not that women are going to learn how to like screw other people, but that they'll learn to be properly self-interested. That that doesn't always involve screwing someone else. Yeah, that you can you, know, you can stand up for yourself, so th- and you can and you can you know bargain not just on your behalf but on behalf of others and you can do it in a way that's not improper but he did manage Um, to make it seem like the fact that women are more likely to be pushy when they're negotiating for a group than for themselves it managed to make that sound like a bad thing so here's here's, what's interesting to me is i actually took away a third line from that there's different (laughs) my interpretation of it was that not that they're going to push going to enforce one norm or the other just like as women uh, or as women reach that critical mass they just get better at enforcing their will whatever that might be um what i think is interesting is how apparently vague i guess his sure. argument I guess that sure. yeah. three of us just took away, three i think fairly educated readers managed to take away different uh takes from it but or di- different conclusions from it but i do think this idea that um, anything is inevitable uh, when it comes to gender equity is just a little bit I, I think it's a little bit dangerous in a way just because it's almost an excuse it's almost an excuse to get lazy oh totally that <laughs> just like you know this is oh this will take care of itself it's just more women naturally end up in these these and you know his his actually he had a, one fascinating uh, point he made at the end was that women have started playing chess right and they've they, they've started getting better and better at chess 
Um, and what that triggered in my mind was I remember talking to an economist who once who once told me essentially that industries where women start to dom- women start to dominate industries once they're no longer lucrative, um, once they've sort of lo- once they've um, for whatever reason the, the you know the, the money's left. And chess is the perfect example of that. No one cares about chess anymore. And now is when <laughs> no one. And now is when women are starting to dominate. And I, I thought that was almost an a, a, an accidentally perfect coda to it. Can I bring up a, a sort of technocratic idea here? And I don't want to. I don't want to risk losing all of your listeners on my my debut appearance we here by nerds. bringing up the term uh, nonlinearities. Yeah. There was a fascinating paper earlier in the year by an economist named Claudia Golden mm-hmm. about this topic. Yeah, and she said that a lot of the gender wage gap um, that persists now. Now is concentrated on certain occupational categories, specifically those where the the, the amount of earnings goes up disproportionately um, or nonlinearly to how many hours are worked. Yeah. And so what happens is that when people get right out of college, the gender wage gap is definitely there, but it's not as big as it becomes later, especially in their 30s when women start having children. All right, but that especially in these uh, occupations, and these include the law, these include finance, these include different parts of corporate management. Yeah. Um, if you work 70 hours, is her example, you get paid more than twice as much as if you work 35 hours. And there's a couple of reasons for it. One is that you know men have always been the ones who have worked in these fields, and so there's a path dependency problem. But the other issue is that sometimes the clients require it, and the companies try to oblige them. And so you have this really difficult situation um, where it's hard to change the design of these fields, and yet it's responsible for a big part of the gender wage gap. Um, and so, you know, the question then is, well, how do you fix that? I think that, that that's, I'm glad you brought that up. I've actually talked to, uh, Professor Golden about that paper. Yeah. I've written about it before. Um, and it's, I think it comes back to the inevitability issue. Um, the idea that, like, you know, her, her, the way I shorthand it is in her ideal world, almost all industries would look sort of like pharmacies where it didn't, you could kind of swap workers in and out, um, of different jobs. And so it wouldn't matter how many hours you worked, you would still get the same hourly wage, essentially. But, the idea that you that that will necessarily happen in an industry like law or banking, there, there's there's nothing inevitable about that, um, and so that's why again the the danger of saying oh yeah it'll just happen on its own course is or it seems really dangerous to me to say that this will just happen on its own. I think that um, we all agree that just because it was published in the New York Times doesn't mean it has to be <laughs> true. Um, <laughs> speaking of inevitable, by the way, I just uh, the next topic is China and its debt and whether it's finally going to go under and I. I, Are you I feel saying like, that's inevitable? Well, I feel like ever since I worked in finance and yeah. started in 2007, um, at least the free market enthusiasts around me have been claiming that China is headed for trouble. And it's headed for trouble basically because it doesn't have enough free market, that the, the Chinese government has its hands in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're going to go back to that. But I do want to mention what's going on in China right now. So. First of all, it should be known that the property market is – most people agree that it's in a bubble in China. We have a huge reliance on exports. So it's, it's, it matters to them how the other parts of the world and in, and in turn, we care about how China's doing, well, as we'll see. Um, the recent news, the reason we get to talk about this today is that bad loans have doubled since last year, the rate of, of loans going bad, um, whereas the debt is still growing at a 16% annual rate, which is to say they're not slowing down how much debt they're creating, but shit is going bad. Um, at the same time, they haven't really let anything fail. And to, to put like the cherry on the top, there's an increasing reliance on the shadow banking industry, according to a new IMF study. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means in China. But 
I guess what I wanted to throw in just to get this conversation started is it's ironic to me that as as, um, the Chinese financial system has become more and more American-like, like it's become more and more looking more and more, at least in at, at a superficial level, like the United States did in 2006, um, that's when it's actually maybe possibly truly going bad. And it, it's not because of the Chinese government. Well, so, Akar, I, I have I have mixed feelings about that um, because, you know, you brought up the issue of, of bad loans, right? And the number, that, how many that, that just the sheer volume of bad loans that are sitting in this economy. And I remember actually talk, learning about this for, for the first time when I was in college. I mean, this was maybe 2006, 2000, when I, when I, I was in a class on essentially Southeast Asia, and I, I started noticing parallels between what I was reading, how some of those economies had gone bust at one point, and parallels what I was reading about news in China. And so this has been a slow-growing problem, but part of that has been the influence of, of state-controlled entities and state-controlled banks and the, the pressure by the government to loan to businesses that maybe could not uh, afford or were not going to be able to make good on their payments. Um, so I don't think it's entirely uh, the result of a Americanized market gone nuts. But I do think there is some, the, the, the debt binge is certainly there's a certain, um, you know, there's a certain uh, whiff of the USA to that. Um, but Cardiff, this is, you know, I, I'm curious here. You, you sure. write a lot more about sh- shadow banking and these kind of murky corners the financial world than I ever will. Sure. So I, I'm really, I'd like to hear your take on what's sure. going on there right I, now. I mean, you know, I guess I would, I would say two things. I mean, first, uh, the vast majority of financial sector debt in China is still state-owned banks to state-owned companies, right? Uh, excuse me, a big percentage of it, if not the majority. Um, and both the state-owned banks um, and the government is still in pretty good financial health for now. And I'd say there's still quite some distance before China, the Chinese economy sort of resembles the American economy. It's this huge, you know, wrenching rebalancing process happening where it's going from this investment-led, export-driven model to something that involves the consumer a lot more. The outcome of that is totally uncertain. I wouldn't be surprised if it all goes down in a huge conflagration, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it, if it turns out to be a very you know, well-managed slowdown. I just don't know. Well, let me, let me, right? just, but, let me get, throw in a couple more facts. Sure. I mean, and really, I'm just going to restate it, but I want you to push back. Sure. Um, so the shadow banking, as far as I understand, it has contributed to more than half of the new loans. Right. So it yes, is a pretty – like let's say the Chinese government wanted to slow it down. How are they going to do that if they don't actually have direct control over it? And also in terms of whether it resembles the United States in 2006, it is a property bubble. So it's like a mortgage problem. Sure. And with like Japan in the, in the early 90s as well and we saw what happened there. Sure. And also it might be useful to do a quick primer for our listeners on what shadow banking actually means in China. Sure. So it's a little bit different. Uh, essentially China – has um, something called the wealth management product, right? And the Chinese government has very strict rules on capital requirements for the actual banks, right? And so one of the problems there is that they include a deposit rate cap, and that's not good enough for a lot of businesses and for a lot of individuals. And so essentially what they want is a way to get around that and to earn a higher return. So the banks have set up these trust companies, essentially, that aren't subject to, um, to these official requirements. And so they can offer you a higher deposit rate, but they're also going to take that money and they're going to invest it in something a lot riskier. And what's happened in the last couple of years is that we've seen that a lot of the money that they've loaned out to some of these companies, especially to commodities-oriented companies, have gone bust. And 
there have been bailouts, right? They've been driven by the local governments in some cases, by the official government, by the excuse me, the central government in some cases. And um, it's one of these things where, as Kathy said, we don't know uh, if they're ever going to actually start allowing defaults to happen, you know, in a, in a really significant way. And until that happens, you can maybe expect the debt to keep going higher and higher. As you said, they've got a problem with. Uh, the debt climbing at a very fast level or at a very fast rate. The debt level itself is not yet um, to a place where I think we need to worry about it too much. Not yet, right? Uh, if you combine, I just read this yesterday. If you combine um, government, uh, household, and financial sector debt, I think it's something like 200% of GDP right now, um, which is lower than like a lot of European countries before the um, before the financial crisis. Now you don't actually want it to get to the point where it's starting, <laughs> we saw what happened there. Um, plus, plus, it's so, been increasing very quickly. Yes, and by the way, this stuff has to get paid back at some point, mm-hmm. right? Some some sector of the Chinese economy is going to bear the brunt of all this debt. Right. And that's that's a problem. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, if you ask economists, it's very, very unlikely that the Chinese economy is going to get back to anything like the growth rates it's had in the last you know, decade or so. So, so I, I have kind of more questions than answers about me this. Too. But, you know, I guess we all do. But you know, it's fascinating to me because right now we're looking, you know, right now the big story as we speak on the American stock market is Alibaba just having its biggest IPO in, in New York Stock Exchange history. People are, you know, clam- climbing over each other to get a piece of China's growth story. And it seems like this is happening at just the moment when suddenly where people think we're looking at the next Japan. Um, so I, I have two questions. One is there any reason to think that we're not – is the smart money – should the smart money bet that we are looking at the ne- next Japan? I mean, is there that, – that we could be looking – and second, is there any possibility that we're looking at something worse? I mean, could it actually just be uh, – like you said, a, a, I mean – what is, what is the probability we're looking at just like a, a big bust, a conflagration? Yeah, right? could, could, maybe we could go dive into this concept of China <laughs> is the next Japan. Yeah, sure. that's true. That's also what does that mean by China? So when I say that, I mean, you know, Japan has lost decade. Essentially, uh, the property bubble there went no, no longer one decade. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, going on to yeah, well, actually now more than two. anyway, it's, it's lost decades. <laughs> and so they had their property bust in the early 90s. They had to bail out banks. And then as a result, they've just had this long period of kind of stagnation, malinvestment, whatnot. Um, the, the flip side is that they've always, they've always had very low unemployment. That's what's kind of made it tolerable. But so that's that's what I meant when I say the next Japan. But um, I mean, you know, I think that's what most people. But I, I'm curious, in the, in the is that like the best case scenario, or is there what is? The... And I was going to throw in like it, estimates that China has four trillion dollars in um, bonds from the United States, Europe, and J- Japan, and like what? How are they going to use that in the event that stuff? goes to pot and what would that mean for the rest of the world sure i mean my, my we're going to make car- we're going to put cardiff <laughs> yeah, on the Cardiff. spot and answer all of this now <laughs> so Sorry, the, we've the, the short day. answer to all of those questions is i don't know uh <laughs> i guess a, a slightly longer uh answer would would look something like this uh you mentioned malinvestment jordan this yeah. was like a big part of the japanese story there's actually even now still some controversy about just how important that was versus mm-hmm. the inept uh and inadequate response of policymakers in the subsequent decade yeah um, um, so there was a lot going on there, you know, in terms of, uh, Kathy, in terms of like the fact that 
China owns all this treasury debt. I'm actually a little bit less worried about this. Um, we've already seen that its currency has appreciated some 35 or 40 percent in the last few years. It's starting to rebalance a little bit. I think the pace of growth in the number of treasuries and whatnot that it buys has started to slow. At some point, it's not you know crazy to think that you know their holdings will start to shrink, but it won't be. There'll be some kind of a, a, a rebalancing process for the rest of the world as well as that happens. Um, so in any case, I, I guess there's a lot of social there's issues of like social fabric and all that that I just can't speak to because I don't know so will it will it end up in this big calamitous situation where there's an uprising or whatever because the economy slows and the central government just isn't ready for it I have absolutely no idea whether or not China ends up with a decade or two of a Japan-like stagnation I think is very possible um, a lot's going to depend on the response of policymakers, uh, and a lot's going to depend um, on whether or not we can catch these problems in advance. But you know, uh, that would be my that would be where I would put my money. I'm glad I don't have any money to actually bet on that. I, I think what, one of the things that we, you know maybe should have said at the very beginning, I'll say it now, <laughs> is that the thing about China is that you really don't have perfect information coming out of no. China, and that that's what makes it dangerous. That's what makes it interesting, and we'll see what happens. Um, so let's let's move on to the third and final topic before our numbers round. Um, Cardiff, where yes. can you talk to us about stock buybacks? Stock buybacks. So I'll give you the, the sort of headline number first, and then I'll, I'll talk about what it is. Uh, in the first half of this year, uh, American companies bought back about $340 billion of their own shares. Okay, that is the fastest half-year clip we've seen since before the financial crisis since 2007. Um, I guess uh, it would probably be a good idea to, to explain this a little bit. Yeah. Right? So essentially... Um, if a company's uh, stock price is undervalued from the perspective of the company's management, one of the things it can do is it can recommend to the board that it can buy back some of its shares, either through something called a tender offer, we don't have to get into that, or out on the open market. Okay? When it does that, the following happens. The company buys back the shares from the market. There are then fewer shares outstanding and available to the public. And so the remaining shareholders have a proportionately higher uh, share of the ownership of that company, and therefore the price of those shares goes up a little bit. So theoretically, right? if there were 200 shares to begin with and the right. company bought back 100 of them, right. then everybody would own twice as much of the company at Correct. the end of the day. That's exactly right. So and we expect the, the the value of that to be higher. So we expect right. the price to go up, and that's what we see. Yes, and remember that when you do that, it doesn't change anything about the fundamental value of the company, which is the same. Uh, it's, just, uh, it's just essentially fewer shares. They each go up in price, and that's it. Now... This has been heavily criticized for a number of reasons, um, and I think some of those reasons are more legitimate than others, but here they are. All right? One is that this amounts to essentially financial chicanery, that the compensation packages for some executives, for some managers, uh, is tied to them meeting certain ratios. Those ratios are affected by the buyback. So even if they don't do anything to actually improve the way the company operates, those ratios will go up. Right? I'm thinking of uh, about a price-to-earnings ratio um, or return on assets. Those things go up despite the company not actually being any better. Right. right? Another is that this is essentially a, a tax trick yeah. where if a company borrows money in order to fund these buybacks, right, or it uses its cash to buy back shares and then it 
goes to the debt markets in order to pay for its operations. Uh, it's a tax trick because the interest on the debt is deductible, but the earnings it would have made on the cash that it had on its books is not deductible. So it's a tax okay. trick in more than one way, as I understand it, because it's also for the stockholders um, a better better for tax reasons. Is that right? Uh, it can be. So um, uh, if you buy back shares, essentially the, the, the value of those shares goes up, but uh, shareholders don't have to pay tax on it until they actually sell it. Right. Right. Yeah. So if they end up holding it for a while, it's like they they have more money. And when I say right, that, I mean they haven't. They don't have to pay compared to dividends. Compared yeah. to dividends, there are a lot of reasons to be frustrated with this. Um, but one of them is the tax issue. Um, when the government, you know, when you when you get a dividend, the government gets a cut. You know, you, you, that is taxed. When your shares just go up and you hold on to them, the government doesn't get any of that. Um, and part of the reason it's extra frustrating is a lot of this, a lot of the debt that's being. I mean, a lot of these buybacks are essentially happening as a result of the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing. Um, they've driven rates very low. And it's not that that was what the Fed intended to be the result, but a lot of companies have just seen the opportunity to borrow at dirt cheap rates and then pump up their stock prices um, and then use what little interest they are paying on that cheap, cheap debt to or as a tax deduction. Um, and so there is a sense it, to it, it, which you have to feel like we are in multiple ways subsidizing these stock prices um, from the tax perspective, from the monetary policy perspective. Um, it, it makes me think that we it's one of the things that makes me think that we we need to kind of reconsider the way the government approaches capital gains um i, I this is kind of a, a fringe idea right now but i sort of like the notion of what's called mark to market capital gains taxing where essentially as your stock price as your stock holdings get more valuable even if you don't sell them you have to tell the government that my stock got more expensive or like my you know my shares of apple went up and then pay taxes on that because it's essentially paying taxes on your wealth and it's it is sort of I, i've said this before on air but i, I kind of like the idea of a wealth tax um let me yeah. push back on that a little bit and yeah. bring up the thing that I, I, as an occupier, find disgusting about all these share buybacks. We all agree it's um, disgusting in one way or another, <laughs> but we disagree with how, I, I guess. I, 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 I think I'm no particular fan of buybacks. I see them as just as much symptom as disease. Um, I can get into it in a minute, but I yeah, don't so want to interrupt. Yeah, so we don't want to interrupt. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right. So, I mean, like, here's the thing. Most, most people don't own stocks. Yeah. Right? So... When there's a buyback and the shareholder is um, enriched, and by the way, the CEOs are enriched because of the way they're compensated, so that's not something to scoff at. Um, and, and if you're asking why this is really happening now, um, you're just who's it? Who's it enriching? It's enriching people who are already wealthy, and um, you know you could you could say, hey, you know, not only rich people have Apple stocks, but if you're going to, you know, if you're going to make people pay. Um, capital gains, you know, when they might not even have any money in the bank, then you're actually preventing middle class people from owning stocks because they literally might not have the money to pay it. That's one thing. But I just want to say, like, taking a step back, um, this is kind of subverting the whole idea of what the stock market's supposed to be. So, like, when I, um, you know, wide-eyed and bushy-tailed went into finance uh, 2006, 2007, I said, well, what does the stock market do? What is its role in society? Why do we let this happen? Mm -hmm. um, and like let an entire class of people just sort of scrape money off the top of it. And the answer was, oh, well, the stock market um, allocates capital where it's needed. And this buyback thing where you just have all this profit, like 
Apple, pro- you know, just literally money, piles of money l- sitting around and, hey, let's just give it to, let's buy back shares and, you know, give some of that money to shareholders. Or you have the monetary easing, you have the quantitative easing um, where you just borrow money and then give it back to shareholders because you can. Um, it's the opposite of what the stock market is actually trying to do. We're supposed to be investing. It's That's the deal, Right. That happens, and at the same time, the larger economy benefits as well because you're investing in the in the economy of the United States. I will say, you know, part of it uh, there there is a rationale for stock buybacks as as, as an investment tool for a company, and that theoretically, uh, you know, executives can decide to buy back their stock when they think it's cheap, and then use it again, then kind of use it later to pay people whatever to use it in, for acquisitions when it's more expensive, so they can get value out of it. The problem is, there, uh, you know, is that executives are really, really bad at figuring out right. in- when they when, when their stock is cheap, and sometimes their incentives are to just kind of buy it. You know, their main incentive is to buy it when they have lots of free cash flowing around, which often is when their stock is actually very, very expensive. So, it, in ways, it can actually undermine the company itself. So I, I like to approach this uh, systematically. I like to think through the options that companies have for what to do with their excess cash, right? And I, I would I would break it down into three categories, right? The one that Kathy mentioned is the one that's sort of the easiest to applaud. It's the one we all like, which is when the company spends, uh, spends the money uh, on growing its business, hiring people, buying a new factory, opening a new store, upgrading its equipment, yeah. whatever. Um, and that's great because if it happens at enough companies, then you get this kind of virtuous cycle of economic growth, right? The second option is rather than giving it back to investors, just having a strong balance sheet, keeping it on its books, and essentially, okay, it doesn't know where to spend the money now. It doesn't see the opportunities, um, but at least that way later on when it does, it won't, have to, it won't have to tap the debt markets. It'll just have the money there. Uh, and then the third is obviously buybacks, which is what we're talking about here. And I guess what I would emphasize is that there can be problems with the first two options as well. Um, and so if you look at, at investing, you know, this sounds great, but let's say companies aren't confident, maybe rightly so, that the economy is going to do well. If they end up spending a lot of that money on a fleet of corporate jets, that's not like investment that we would applaud. We would consider that to be a waste of shareholders' money. This right? is another An example waste, of right? nonlinearity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and uh, in terms of the cash kept on its books, this is something that I, I think a lot of people underappreciate. Those big cash pools that we've seen grow in the last couple of decades, those can be destabilizing too, right? So mm-hmm. th- this is, I'll do this as quickly as possible because, again, I don't want to lose all of our listeners here. <laughs> but... <laughs> A CFO of a company, the chief financial officer of a company, right, yeah. isn't going to invest that extra money uh, in a way that, that like a normal kind of, you know, institutional investor or a pension fund or whatever would invest it. They're going to invest it for safety, right? Because the last thing like a company like Apple needs is to find out that the chief financial officer lost $6 billion in a quarter because he or she put a big bet on high yield bonds just before they sold off or whatever, right? So they're going to look for a safe asset. They can't just leave it in deposits at a bank because in a low rate environment, it's going to get eroded away by inflation. They're going to look for something like treasury securities uh, or something like that. But unfortunately, those aren't easy to come by right now, right? There aren't enough of those to satisfy demand. And so what happened in the years before the crisis was these these uh, corporate cash pools essentially went to the banks, to the dealer banks specifically, and said, manufacture me a safe asset. And they did in something called the repo market, which is where these corporate cash pools would lend this money overnight in exchange for collateral and then get paid a small amount uh, in return for the loan. Yeah. The problem is that the dealer banks, and this is what banking is, needed to make it worth their while to make that loan. So they took this money, 
or excuse me, to accept the money. All right. So they took this money and they ended up going into something called a reverse repo, right, with a riskier investor. Well, guess what those riskier investors did with that money? They levered up their investments in things like asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities, funky derivatives, okay? And that contributed to a big part of the decline. So the point is that that can be destabilizing, too. When you have a giant pool of money that needs to go somewhere sometimes, that floods the problem. All right, so I don't, it's not that buybacks are great. Often, you know, they're nonsense. And often, as you said, Jordan, in practice, they get this wrong, right? They end up buying a lot of shares when the companies are in a, you know, huge bull market and they end up overpaying for them. My point is just that if you want to fix the problem of the buyback surge, you need to find more fundamental solutions. You need, first of all, good counter-cyclical fiscal and monetary policy so that companies feel confident investing the money and they invest the money in worthwhile things. Or, and this is where I definitely agree with you guys, you could fix the way governance is run in the country and you could change the way the incentive structure for the way uh, that managers are paid. You could change the role of corporate board to make sure they oversee this better, um, and you can do things like that. But I don't, I don't view the argument that if companies are doing all these buybacks, they're taking away money that they would otherwise be investing wisely. I, I, I think you need a much bigger solution to this so problem. I, I, I appreciate a lot of that. I think there is one other thing is, you know, the one option you, you didn't mention that they can do with their money, if, if it's sitting there, is a regular dividend. And one of the nice things about a dividend is it kind of benefits everyone equally, um, who all of the investors, at the very least, you know, it rewards. Whereas a, a buyback specifically benefits or it disproportionately benefits management, people who are paid in options and have stock options and also are going to be sitting there still holding those options once a bunch of their shareholders have sold back their stock um, in the buyback. And then on top of that, because of the, 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 the weird timing and how often it is actually a bad long-term decision, it, it does end up Sometimes, you know, it, it, there, it does create weird incentives, and that's as opposed to a regular dividend. And so that, that's, I, I guess that's, that's my concern about it. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. look, I've enjoyed you guys ranting about this. <laughs> uh, Sorry. Uh, no, no, it's good. I think it's interesting. Well, you, you didn't I, rant too? I will. Come on. I just, I'll just have the last word instead. How's that? <laughs> okay. Um, that this good. is froth. That's yeah. my last word. It's froth. Okay, okay, let's move on to the numbers round. My number, we're going to go around the table this way. My number is $54 million. And it's the number of light years away from this new supermassive black hole in a ultra compact dwarf galaxy that they found. Oh my God. And it's called M60UCD1. And I just want to say that that, those words are so cool. Ultra massive. I just want, I just want to become a physicist because of those words. Yes. How much, how much, <laughs> um, do I have to follow that? It's the coolest. <laughs> it's the coolest number <laughs> of great. any numbers round so far. Go ahead, Cardiff. Your turn. Now you win for sure. Uh, my number is fourteen, which is the number of years since the median household income peaked, according to the Census Bureau's Income and Poverty Report in the U.S. That's nineteen ninety nine. Uh, that is a really, really sobering figure. Sigh. Yes, it is. <laughs> I told you mine wasn't as cool as hers. Yeah, yeah. My number is. So kind of sad, especially compared to super I massive gone black last. holes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, really? This is so deflating. Mine's 14.5, uh, which is the poverty rate. It fell this year or in 2013 for the first time since 2006. Um, and just the fact that we are this many, it took this many years into the recovery for the poverty rate to fall at all uh, is one of, I think, the great symbols of its failure. And I just uh, thank you for saying poverty rate because I wanted to push back that it, the gender gap news is good because I, as I read it, the poverty gap for women is increasing. Yeah. Not, so 
anyway, the problem with aggregate statistics is that they're aggregate. If we're looking for things to worry about, it, there's plenty to see in the gender gap. Let me get this straight, all right? Kathy had black holes. Jordan, you and I had almost the same number from the same report. Yeah, I know, I'm quitting show. Yeah, yeah, seriously, guys, <laughs> keep up. Well, let's wrap it up for this week. Thanks for listening to Slate Money, everyone. And let's give an extra special thanks to Cardiff for joining us today. Felix who? (laughs) If you like the show, please subscribe in the iTunes store and leave us a review. Help spread the word about the show. You can find us by searching for Slate Money. Write to us at slatemoney at slate.com. And we love your letters and especially your compliments and your questions. The producers for Slate Money are Tracy Samuelson and Stan Alcorn. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. For Cardiff Garcia and Jordan Weissman, I'm Kathy O'Neill. Felix will be back next week, but sadly, I will not be. But we're going to have another special guest. So stay tuned. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>